Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. Greetings and welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. My name is George Dvorsky. I'll be your host for about the next hour or so as we cover such topics as futurism and transhumanism, science and technology. I'm a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com and I'm chairman of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. For today's episode, I'm going to discuss democratic transhumanism as uh, articulated by James Hughes. We'll also talk about his opinions on personhood theory and the development of AI and robotics. Then, for the uh, big chunk of the episode, going to focus on the development of artificial intelligence. We're going to discuss such things as reverse engineering the human brain. Uh, we'll play some clips from Ben Gertzel and Eliezer Yudkowsky. And in particular, going to focus in on how long it may take to develop artificial intelligence and the kind of human equivalent intelligence and superintelligence that we are predicting. Then we'll end the episode with a, just a brief discussion on whether or not human viruses and computer viruses could ever merge. And I'll close off the episode with a discussion of transhumanism and the intelligence principle. Now, before we get started, just some news. I am off to... I'm actually recording this podcast a little bit early... Uh, because I've got a very busy schedule. I am off to New York this week for the Moral Brain Conference. And uh, it's the 2012 Bioethics Conference, The Moral Brain, and it's going to be at New York University WSQ campus. And it's a, it's a two-part conference, two-day, actually it's a three-day conference, uh, where the first half will be a discussion on the, the significance of neuroscience for morality, looking into the research that's been done over the last few decades when it comes to understanding the moral brain and what it is about our brain and how it works that makes us empathetic, moral, so-called virtuous uh, creatures. And in the second half of the conference, the question will be, can moral behavior be improved or enhanced? Now, I will be live blogging the event, assuming, of course, I have all the uh, connections to Wi-Fi and all that good stuff. So uh, you should have seen that uh, posted on my blog. If not, check it out. And obviously, I will, uh, on the next podcast, whenever that may be, I will discuss the uh, conference in detail and let you guys know what it is that I saw and heard. In addition to that, I will be on Al Jazeera today, later today, and uh, they're going to want to talk to me about transhumanism. I will be on a panel with a bunch of other individuals who I don't know who they will be yet, and it will be on Al Jazeera English, and uh, the show is called The Stream. And again, I will update you uh, next week on how that went. And just to close up here, before we get on to the segments, the CrossFit Open is now complete. There was a five-week tournament involving some 65,000 CrossFitters from around the world. And uh, I'll spare you some of the details, but suffice to say, I finished uh, about 10 percentile points higher than I did last year, which makes me very happy, which means that the last year of work has paid off. Nothing like um, having a 10-point improvement in a year's time, in particular when you're comparing yourself to some incredible athletes who are you know, arguably getting stronger with each passing year, uh, while I'm certainly getting older with each passing year. So definitely uh, happy with, uh, with how that turned out. And for those interested, the last, the last workout was a kind of uh, thruster and chest-to-bar pull-up ladder, and uh, where you had, you had to do three thrusters at 100 pounds and then three chest-to-bar pull-ups at, uh, uh, and then uh, go back to the thrusters, six thrusters, and then six chest-to-bar pull-ups, then nine thrusters, nine chest-to-bar pull-ups, and so on in that matter, and that manner. So that it was, a, it was a, a ladder that was increasing by three with each passing round, and you had seven minutes to, to work. That's a tremendous amount of work to do. And uh, in the seven minutes, I scored 75 points, which was, I believe, a seven to eight, yeah, seven points improvement from last year, because we actually did this identical workout last year. So I actually got into, I actually finished my, my round of 15 thrusters. And at that point, I pretty much just collapsed at my, as the time ran out. And I have to say, of the five workouts, that was 
perhaps the most uh, demanding and you certainly felt it afterwards. And I was, as I was watching other competitors, uh, there was that universal reaction at the end of just uh, collapse and uh, having to deal with all that lactic acid burn and all the muscles just uh, very tense and sore. So uh, that's how we have fun at CrossFit, and uh, that's how we also keep in shape and keep motivated. And now just back to the regular programming, and I think uh, the, the emphasis on our gym over the next several weeks will be on cardiovascular endurance and metabolic conditioning. So a lot of running, a lot of Metcons and so on, so that will be the focus. And I will continue to work on that, and of course strength, which is of paramount importance to me. Let's take a break, listen to some music. When we get back, going to share some insights from James Hughes on democratic transhumanism, on personhood theory, and the development of AI. Hughes, good friend of mine and a mentor of mine as well. He is the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. He was recently interviewed about democratic transhumanism and personhood theory and AI with an unknown interviewer, but he was kind enough to share his responses with me, and I will in turn share those responses with you as they are very much related to many of the topics discussed on this podcast and on my blog. Namely, um, this kind of techno-progressive idea and personhood and, of course, the development of AI. So James was asked, you created the term democratic transhumanism. So how do you define it? To which Hughes responded, quote, The term democratic transhumanism distinguishes a biopolitical stance that combines socially liberal or libertarian views advocating internationalist, secular, free speech, and individual freedom values with economically egalitarian views, which are pro-regulation, pro-redistribution, pro-social welfare values, with an openness to the transhuman benefits that science and technology can provide, such as longer lives and expanded abilities. It was an attempt to distinguish the views of most transhumanists who lean left from the minority of highly visible Silicon Valley-centered libertarian transhumanists on the one hand, and from the left bioconservatives on the other. In the last six or seven years, the phrase has been supplanted by the descriptor techno-progressive, which is used to describe the same basic set of Enlightenment values and policy proposals. And there are one, two, three, four, five of these policy proposals. So number one, human enhancement technologies, especially anti-aging therapies, should be a priority of publicly funded basic research, be well regulated for safety, and be included in programs of universal health care. The second being structural unemployment, resulting from automation and globalization needs to be ameliorated by defense of the social safety net and the creation of universal basic income guarantees. Thirdly, there's the issue of global catastrophic risks, both natural and man-made, and they require new global programs of research, regulation, and preparedness. Fourthly, legal and political protections need to be expanded to include all self-aware persons, including the great apes, cetaceans, enhanced animals and humans, machine minds, and hybrids of animals, humans, and machines. And lastly, alliances need to be built between techno-progressives and other progressive movements around sustainable development, global peace, and security, and civil and political rights on the principle that access to safe enabling technologies are fundamental to a better future. End quote. The next question that Hughes was asked was this. In simple terms, what is the personhood theory? How do you think it will be applied to AI. And James responded this way, quote, 
In Enlightenment thought, persons are beings aware of themselves with interests that they enact over time through conscious life plans. Personhood is a threshold which confers some rights, while there are levels of rights both above and below personhood. Society is not obligated to treat beings without personhood, such as most animals, human embryos, and humans who are permanently unconscious, as having a fundamental right to exist in themselves as a right to life. To the extent that non-persons can experience pain, however, we're obliged to minimize their pain. Above personhood, we oblige humans to pass thresholds of age, training, and testing, and licensure before they can exercise other rights, such as driving a car, owning a weapon, or prescribing medicine. Children have basic personhood rights, but full adult persons who have custody over them have an obligation to protect and nurture children to their fullest possible possession of mature personhood rights. Who to include in the sphere of persons is a matter of debate, but at the IEET, we generally believe that apes and cetaceans meet the threshold. Beyond higher mammals, however, the sphere of potential kinds of minds is enormous, and it is very likely that some enhanced animals, post-humans, and machine minds will possess only a subset of the traits that we consider necessary for conferring personhood status. For instance, a creature might possess a high level of cognition and communication, but no sense of awareness or separate egotistic interests. In fact, when designing AI, we will probably attempt to avoid creating creatures with interests separate from our own, since they could be quite dangerous. Posthumans, meanwhile, may experiment with cognitive capacities in ways that sometimes take them outside of the sphere of persons with political aims to rights, such as if they suppress capacities for empathy, memory, or identity. End quote. The next question, what ethical obligations are involved in the development of AI? And James responded, quote, we first have an ethical obligation to all present and future persons to ensure that the creation of machine intelligence enhances their life options and doesn't diminish or extinguish them. The most extreme version of this dilemma is posed by the possibility of a hostile superintelligence which could be an existential risk to life as we understand it. Short of that, the simple expansion of automation and robotics will likely eliminate most forms of human labor, which could result in widespread poverty, starvation, and death, and the return of a feudal order. Conversely, a well-regulated transition to an automated future with a basic income guarantee could create an egalitarian society in which humans all benefit from leisure. We also have ethical obligations in relationship to the specific kinds of AI we will create. As I mentioned above, we should avoid creating self-willed machine minds because of the dangers they might pose to the humans they are intended to serve. But we also have an obligation to the machine minds themselves to avoid making them self-aware. Our ability to design self-aware creatures with desires that could be thwarted by slavery, or perhaps even worse, to design creatures who only desire to serve humans and have no will to self-development, is very troubling. If self-willed, self-aware machine minds do get created, or emerge naturally, and are not a catastrophic threat, then we will have an obligation to determine which ones can fit into the social order as rights-bearing citizens. End quote. The next and last question what direction do you see technology headed? Robots as tools or robots as beings? And Hughes answered, quote, It partly depends on whether self-aware machine minds are first created by brain-machine interfaces, brain emulation, and brain uploading, or are designed de novo in machines or worse, emerge spontaneously. The closer the connection to human brains that machine minds have, the more likely they are to retain the characteristics of personhood that we can recognize and work with as fellow citizens. But a mind that emerges more from silicon is unlikely to have anything in common with human minds, and more likely to either be a tool without a will of its own, or a being that we can't communicate or coexist with. End quote. And thus ends the interview with James Hughes on uh, these discussions, on these topics that certainly are of interest to me. Um, one, just one comment as I read that, I'm not quite convinced that we will actually be able to prohibit the development of AIs that may, uh, eventually exhibit artificial consciousness. I think that kind of a prohibition would be very difficult to enforce. And one could even make the strong case that it would be, um, a kind of a scientific censorship. I totally understand where James is coming coming from in terms of wanting to pre prevent uh, the emergence of self-awareness in our machines. But again, I just cannot see that uh, being something that we can actually prevent. So I think, uh, as I discussed on a few podcasts ago, about uh, you know trying to develop a test to both uh, test for artificial consciousness, but also to, to set up a set of parameters with which we can um, protect the, the emergence of artificial consciousness. I think that that's probably 
more reasonable in terms of our next steps, or at least in terms of our um, ability to foresee how we need to uh, act should uh, should this uh, actually come into being. Okay, let's take a break. And going to spend the next chunk of time discussing, uh, I guess maybe more along these lines, the, the creation of artificial intelligence, things like AGI and superintelligence, and talk about some timelines that may be uh, involved in their development. Some of you may remember there was quite a debate between P.Z. Myers and Ray Kurzweil. But this was about a couple of years ago, back in 2010. And uh, the debate was about reverse engineering the human brain. And it's fairly representative of the same debate that's been going on in futurist circles for quite some time now. And as that Myers-Kurzweil conversation attests, there is little consensus on the best way for us to go about achieving human equivalent AI. Now that said, I've noticed that there is an increasing interest in the whole brain, the whole brain emulation approach, which I'll refer to now as WBE. And Rick Kurzweil, he's got a book that's coming up, although I keep waiting for this and I'm not sure what his publication date will be, but it's uh, tentatively titled How the Mind Works and How to Build One. And it's a good example of this uh, renewed emphasis toward uh, whole brain emulation. But it's hardly, uh, Kurzweil's vision is hardly the only one. Futurists with a neuroscientific bent have been advocating this approach for years now and most prominently by the European transhumanists over at Oxford, including Bostrom and Sandberg. Now, while I believe that reverse engineering the human brain is the right approach, I admit that it's not going to be easy, nor is it going to be quick. This will be a multidisciplinary endeavor that will require decades of data collection and the use of technologies that don't even exist yet. And importantly, success won't come all at once. This will be an incremental process in which individual developments will provide the foundation for overcoming the next conceptual hurdle. But we've got to start somewhere, and we have to start with a plan. But first I want to talk about rule-based AI versus the whole brain emulation approach. Now some computer theorists maintain that the rules-based approach to AI will get us there. And uh, it'll get us there first. Let's take Ben Gertzel, for example. He's an AI theorist. I've had a chance to debate with him uh, on this topic, and his basic argument is that the WBE approach, it overcomplexifies the issue. What he said to me was that we didn't have to reverse engineer the bird to learn how to fly. So essentially, he's confident, Gertzel is, that the hard coding of artificial general intelligence, which I'll refer to now as AGI, is a more elegant and direct approach. It'll simply be a matter of, of identifying and developing the requisite algorithms sufficient for the emergence of the traits we're looking for in an AGI, things like learning and adaptation. And as for the WBE approach, now Gertzel, he thinks it's overkill and overly time-consuming, but he did concede to me that he thinks the approach is sound in principle. Now this approach aside, like Kurzweil, Bostrom, Sandberg, and a growing number of other thinkers, I am drawn to the whole brain emulation camp. The idea of reverse engineering the human brain, it makes sense to me. Now unlike the rules-based approach, WBE works off a tried-and-true working model. We're not having to reinvent the wheel. Natural selection, through excruciatingly tedious trial and error, was able to create the human brain, and all without a preconceived design. There's no reason to believe that we can't figure out how this was done. If the brain could come about through autonomous processes, then it can most certainly come about through the diligent work of intelligent researchers. So now moving on to the discussion of emulation, simulation, and cognitive functionalism. Let's take emulation, and emulation refers to a one-to-one -one model where all relevant properties of a system exist. Then now this doesn't mean recreating the human brain in exactly the same way as it resides inside our skulls. Rather, 
it implies the recreation of all of its properties in an alternative substrate, namely a computer system. Also want to make clear that emulation is not simulation. Now we're not looking to give the appearance of human equivalent cognition. A simulation implies that not all properties of a model are present. Again, it's a complete one-to-one -one emulation that we're after. All right, now, given that we're looking to model the human brain in digital substrate, we have to work according to a rather fundamental assumption, computational functionalism. And this goes back to the Church-Turing thesis, which states that a Turing machine can emulate any other Turing machine. Essentially, this means that every physically computable function can be computed by a Turing machine. And if a brain activity is regarded as a function that is physically computed by brains, then it should be possible to compute it on a Turing machine, like a computer. So, if you believe that there's something mystical or vital about human cognition, you should probably stop listening now. Or, if you believe that there's something inherently physical about intelligence that can't be translated into the digital realm, you've got your work cut out for you to explain what it is ex that is exactly. Keeping in mind that any informational process is computational, including those brought about by chemical reactions. Moreover, intelligence, which is what we're after here, is something that's intrinsically non-physical to begin with. So now, setting aside, uh, or rather forging, this roadmap to whole brain emulation. Now, a number of critics point out that we'll never emulate a human brain on account of the chaos and complexity inherent in such a system. On this point, I will disagree. As Bostrom and Sandberg have pointed out, we will not need to understand the whole system in order to emulate it. What's required is a functional understanding of all necessary low-level information about the brain and knowledge of the local update rules that change brain states from moment to moment. What is meant by low level at this point is an open question, but it likely won't involve a molecule-by-molecule -molecule understanding of cognition. And as Ray Kurzweil has revealed, the brain contains masterful arrays of redundancy. It's actually not as complicated as we think it is. So in order to gain this low-level functioning understanding of the human brain, we need to employ a series of interdisciplinary approaches, most of which are currently underway. Now, specifically, we're going to require advances in the following fields, computer science, microscopy and scanning technologies, the neurosciences, and genetics. So let's talk about each, each one of these individually. So let's take computer science. We have to improve the hardware component. We're going to need machines with the processing power requ required to host a human brain, and we're also going to need to improve the software components so that we can create algorithmic correlates to specific brain function. Microscopy and scanning technologies. We need to better study and map the brain at the physical level. Brain slicing techniques will allow us to visibly study cognitive action down to the molecular scale. Specific areas of inquiry will, will include molecular studies of individual neurons, the scanning of neuronal connection patterns, and determining the function of neural clusters, and on and on. And then, of course, there's the neurosciences. We need more impactful advances in the neurosciences so that we may better understand the modular aspects of cognition and start mapping the neural correlates of consciousness, what is currently a very gray area. And lastly, the field of genetics. We need to get a better at reading our DNA for clues about how the brain is constructed. Now, while I agree that our DNA will not tell us how to build a fully functional brain, it will tell us how to start the process of brain building from scratch. Now, essentially, the whole brain emulation requires three main capabilities. First, the ability to physically scan brains in order to acquire the necessary information. Two, the ability to interpret the scan data to build a software model, and three, the ability to simulate this very large model. So what about the timeframes? Inevitably, the question as to when crops up. Now, personally, I could care less. I'm more interested in viability than timelines. But if pressed for an answer, my feeling is that we are still quite a ways off. Kurzweil's prediction of 2030 is uncomfortably short, in my opinion. His, anal his analogies to the Human Genome Project, to me, are unsatisfying. This is a project of much greater magnitude, not to mention that we're still likely heading down some blind alleys. Personally, my own feeling is that we'll likely be able to emulate the human brain in about 50 to 75 years, maybe 100. I will admit that I'm pulling this figure a bit out of my butt, but I really have no idea. It's more of a feeling than a scientifically backed estimate. Lastly, it's worth noting that given the capacity to recreate a human brain in digital substrate, we won't be too far off from creating considerably greater than human intelligence. Let's take computer theorist Eliezer Yudkowsky and his claim that 
Because of the brain's particular architecture, we may, able, we may be able to accelerate its processing speed by a factor of a million relatively easily. Consequently, predictions as to when we may hit the singularity will likely coincide with the advent of a fully emulated human brain. So that's my take on the whole brain emulation topic and when we can hopefully bring about an AI. But I want to have some other uh, voices in this conversation. Two in particular, and I've already mentioned both of them. There's Ben Gertzel and Eliezer Yudkowsky. So I'm going to play a couple of clips here now. The first clip is it's an interview of Ben Gertzel and he is basically asked when he feels that we will be able to achieve artificial general intelligence. And uh, he believes it'll be around 2020, but only if we, quote-unquote, really, really try. So in this interview, Ben talks about the state of AI research, his OpenCog project, and his hope that AGI can be developed as early as 2020. So um, just uh, before I get into the clip, I uh, just want to mention that, again, he was more of the rules-based AI guy than the whole brain emulation approach. So he thinks that we can actually go about it more in terms of scripting and putting together algorithms and just figuring out the software component of it, that we don't need to kind of uh, recreate, um, uh, a, 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 as he put it, an airplane. We just need to, sorry, we don't need to recreate the bird here. All we need to do is kind of create a kind of an airplane to mimic human cognition. And, uh, he also is a, and I, and one area where I really support him is his, his belief that we have to not just develop, uh, an AI that's fully robust and intelligent and knows, you know, everything that you know, that we actually have to teach it. We have basically are trying to create something that can learn and adapt. And he, that's why he's, he's big on this, creating a kind of AI that will be like a baby or very, uh, baby-ish and that we will go about teaching it, instructing it. It'll learn from experience. And that is, that is his opinion on how an AI will emerge. And I think there's a lot of efficacy to that particular approach. So that'll be Ben Gertzel. And following that, um, a, a clip that features Eliezer Yudkowsky, another artificial intelligence theorist. And uh, he's over there at the, inst at the Singularity Institute. And this clip, he features him in conversation with MIT's Scott Aronson, who's providing a kind of counterpoint against uh, Yudkowsky. And again, they're also going to be talking about timelines. When it comes to the development of artificial intelligence, but in particular, I believe they're referring to um, artificial superintelligence as well, and they're having a debate about the singularity and what it represents, and of course, the discussion on timelines and viability, and uh, uh, they have some very contrasting opinions on that particular issue. So that's enough of me talking now, so let's take the next uh, few minutes to listen to Ben Gersel and Eliezer Yudkowsky. When the AI field, the field of artificial intelligence, was founded in the late 1950s, its goal was to create thinking machines that would be as smart as people and then ultimately even smarter than people. The field sort of drifted away from that over the years because it was found to be a very difficult goal and the field became more preoccupied with highly specialized highly task-specific sorts of artificial intelligence, like machines that play chess, or machines that can drive cars under certain conditions, or machines that can solve certain planning and scheduling problems. A number of us in the AI field believe that now is the time to refocus on the grand goal of AI, what I like to call AGI, artificial general intelligence. We believe that due to a combination of advances in allied fields, the time is ripe for a frontal assault on the AGI problem. We have much faster computers now than ever before. We have a lot more knowledge about human cognition and the human brain. We have much, much better computing algorithms and much better computer software than we've had in the past. Putting all these pieces together, we're in a really good position to do what the founders of the AI field wanted to do back in the 50s. Toward that end, I co-founded an open-source AGI project called OpenCOD in 2008. And we have a pretty detailed design within the OpenCOD project a design for a software system 
that we believe we'll be able to think like a human and ultimately better than a human. We have a lot of work to do to finish implementing the design. Then we will need to teach it, much as one teaches a human baby. It will become smarter and smarter over time in interaction with the world and with us. We believe that if we push full speed ahead on this project, we could viably reach completion in, in 10 years or, or maybe even less. Getting there that fast won't be just a matter of having the science and engineering right. It'll be a matter of having enough funding to pay a sufficiently large team, enough passion and dedication on the part of the team. Predicting the timing of a complex project like this is always difficult, but nevertheless, I think these things could happen a lot faster than anyone thinks if there was real focus put on it. Look at what they did in a few years in the Manhattan Project or the Human Genome Project. With that kind of focus on AGI, we get a long way pretty quickly. An AGI Manhattan Project would be awesome. Um, is there any, like, a, there's a few different approaches to uh, artificial general intelligence. One is the software approach um, and trying to sort of write the, the programs or the algorithms that sort of uh, represent intelligence rather than just how intelligence is represented in the human brain. Um, and, of course, there's reverse engineering the brain. Um, which approach or which bits of these approaches is uh, OpenCog taking? Our primary approach in OpenCog now is computing and cognitive science-based rather than neuroscience-based. We're not trying to emulate how the human brain functions. The OpenCog software platform, in principle, could be used as a platform for computational neuroscience. However, my view is that the currently existing data about how the human brain works is not really sufficient to support neuroscience-driven AGI at the moment. Once neuroscience advances and we have more data about the brain, that may be the best approach. For now, what we're doing is architecting our system on the high level based on cognitive science, cognitive psychology, with some input from neuroscience, where there is sufficient neuroscience knowledge, then we are filling in the details using computer science, using the best-known algorithms to perform each of the functions identified by our cognitive science-based architecture. Okay. So um, now, people coming along to the conference are going to see your talk. What, what would they uh, take away from it, and what, what would they be able to get, and what would they be interested in coming to um, listen to what you have to say about this? Well, the OpenCog design, of course, is a large and complex beast. I'm currently in the final stages of writing an 850-page book going through the details of the OpenCog plan for making a thinking machine. So in a brief talk, I'm certainly not going to be able to tell you the full recipe for making a thinking machine, but I hope I can convey some of the spirit and some of the key ideas underlying what we're doing with OpenCog. So the main message I'd like to get across is this is not science fiction. This is not some insane fantasy. There are serious AI scientists with serious academic and industry backgrounds who right now are working hard on a project implementing a software design that appears to be capable ultimately of leading to human-level intelligence. So I want to present a case that this is real and concrete work just as worthy of focus and attention as imaging the brain, as making computers to play chess or drive cars, as any of the other less ambitious things that are getting focus and resources these days. Sure, yeah, I mean like, I, I think that 
getting a AGI right would um, probably be the most powerful catalyst for for change, uh, positive change in the world if it's done. Absolutely. I mean, when you talk about the singularity, when you think about what technology, what advance could have the potential to transform everything radically for the better, get rid of death and disease, minimize material scarcity, solve the psychological and social problems that have pleased humanity at least since the dawn of civilization. The one thing that clearly has the potential to solve all these problems and more is the advent of minds vastly more intelligent and capable than our own. Certainly there are large potential risks associated with AGI technology, but if the AGI is architected correctly, it can be not only more intelligent, but also more compassionate than human beings. We can have a tremendously beneficial outcome, literally better than we're able to imagine with our merely human minds. topic of conversation we, we are redoing today, actually, is the singularity. So I, thankfully, have completely forgotten what we talked about last time. So we can uh, start from scratch. Okay. Now, now, Scott, it seems pretty obvious to me that at some point in the not-too-distant future, we're going to build an AI smart enough to improve itself, and having improved itself, make additional improvements to itself, and it will... Um, and uh, it will go foom upward in intelligence, and uh, by the time it exhausts available avenues for improvement, it will be a super intelligence relevant to us, uh, relative to us. Do you feel that this is obvious? And if not, why not? The main thing that I uh, consider non-obvious in your statement is the uh, is the qualifier "not too distant" uh, in, in "not too distant future." So, uh, so, so here, here's the. I think, I think uh, uh, our difference here is really uh, a quantitative one, you know. But uh, quantitative differences, if they're large enough, can can uh, sort of look a lot like qualitative uh, differences. So, I mean, um, okay. So this, um, uh, you know, I I, uh, I saw this uh, blocking heads that you did uh, a couple. Of years ago, I think, with John Horgan, right, and he uh, sort of expressed what I think is the reaction of uh, many people when they first hear about this singularity idea, which is that it sounds like completely crazy science fiction. It's the, you know, the rapture of the nerds, right, is the, uh, and, you know, uh, word used for it, right, or it's this uh, religious kind of fantasy uh, that, uh, you know, we're all going to have uh, eternal life, we're going to be uh, immortal, we're, you know, uh, uh, the super intelligence is, uh, well, it's, you know, either going to create a utopia or a dystopia one or the other. I mean, it just sounds so much like what, you know, people have been uh, uh, fantasizing about for such a long time. But just well, no, no it, just... It, doesn't, it doesn't actually sound like that. It is recognized by them, so their brain completes the pattern and they fill in all this other stuff regardless of whether or not anyone has actually told it to them. They expect it to be there, so they just assume that it is there. Um, I think it's fairly important to distinguish between things that are actually part of the position versus things that people expect ought to be there since their brain has categorized it as a fantasy and then they just sort of 
make up all the details that they expect to hear. Yes, well, I, said, I did say sounds like. I didn't say is like. I was uh, just summarizing the reaction of uh, most people to that because I wanted to contrast it with my reaction. I don't reject it okay. in those terms. Um, I think that, um, you know, if it, uh, uh, first of all, if it is wrong, then it's certainly not obviously wrong. Uh, uh, so, you know, the idea that uh, we could build uh, computers that are, that are smarter than us or that uh, we could, uh, um, you know, and that those computers could build still smarter computers and so on until we sort of reach the physical limits of what kind of intelligence is possible or that we could build things that, uh, uh, that sort of are to us as, uh, you know, as we are to, to ants, right? I mean, all of this is compatible with the laws of physics as I understand them, and I, I can't find a reason of principle why uh, it couldn't eventually come to pass. So, uh, you know, as I said, I think the main thing that we, that we disagree about is really the time scale. Um, so, uh, you know, um, you said the not-too-distant future. Uh, you know, I assume that by that, you know, you, you're, you're talking on a, on a span of decades, but Decades is fair. Um, okay. And, and, and if I'd meant ten decades I would have, or, or more, I would have said centuries. So yes. um, one to ten decades. Sure. One to ten decades. <laughs> okay. So um, Probably on the lower side of that. Okay. So, uh, so, so my sort of, uh, um, you know, gut-level intuition, and, you know, I, I haven't, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, uh, Let's spit out your estimate. Over yes, here. yeah, I know, I know. We're, we're you know, uh, uh, you believe in Bayesianism, you believe in spitting out estimates. I think a few thousand years you know, seems seems more reasonable to me, based on. So, so yeah. in other words, the did um, considering where we started at the time of Galileo, mm -hmm. and where we are now, mm -hmm. you think we've got you know four to six times the distance left to cover that we've covered already from where from from Galileo's starting point to where we are now. That's correct. So, so you think that we, um, we've got, you know, we don't even, 500 years is a lot of time in science, and we don't even know how much uh, time 1,000 years is in science because we've never had 1,000 years of science. That's correct. So I, I'm a... a where are you getting this estimate from? Like, why okay, do you believe I mean, what you believe? Okay, so I mean, I could, you know, the obvious response, you know, would be, you know, where, where are you getting your estimate from? But that's maybe too glib. I mean, uh, the, so, so where, where I'm, I'm getting it from is, is thinking about, you know, for example, how much distance has been, you know, traversed in the last 50 years of AI research. And, uh, you know, in the, uh, 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 in the in, in the 60s, for example, uh, you know, uh, you know, there are these, uh, you know, famous stories that you know, a vision was considered a, a summer project for a, you know, for an undergraduate, right? And uh, you know, what we realized is that we were actually in trying to build intelligent machines, uh, competing against uh, a billion years of evolution, uh, in some sense. And uh, you know, it's um, it's a staggeringly hard problem. Now. Uh, you know, a few uh, uh, thousand years, you know, is really just a way of saying that sort of my uncertainty uh, um, uh, is, you know, is, is in the exponent, right? It could be hundreds of years, it could be tens of thousands of years. You know, at that point, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the prior sort of just becomes a, a logarithmic, right? And uh, so, um, so, so, uh, you know, and, and, and that, that was, you know, that's sort of the view that, that I would have formed just from, from, from what I know about, uh, about AI, for example, you know, I'm, uh, and, uh, you know, and then the question for me is, well, well should I revise uh, my estimate just based on the fact that, uh, you know, people like you, other people who's, who, you know, who've thought about this and whose judgments I respect, you know, for some reason seem to believe that it's going to happen in some tens of years. And, uh, um, you know, just so far I haven't found the... Uh, um, I just haven't found a compelling enough reason to, sh to, sh to shift to, uh, to think that this is going to happen in I, 10 I, years. I, I point out that if you literally use a logarithmic prior, that um, what I believe updating on the logarithmic prior ends up telling you is that you should expect it to take roughly as long as it's taken already. So counting from Dartmouth, which was, I think, 1955 or 1958 or something like that, it would be another 50 to 60 years. Now, the thing is, 
Um, if it does take, say, another 50 years, then two days before it actually happens, you'll be estimating 100 years in the future. And okay, well, that's a reflection. Okay, well, talking about a uniform prior over all exponents. I mean, that doesn't exist, first of all. There's not uh, a... Well, it's uh, an improper prior. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah, so, uh, so, so, so what I mean is that, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared to say, you know, are we talking about 10 to the 3 years or 10 to the 4 years or, uh, or something like that. But, uh, um, you know, but, but, the, but the between those two, sort of the... Uh, you know the the the, uh, the uncertainty is, uh, is 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 in the exponent rather than in the base. Well, for a species that literally only just um, started building serious computers around 65 years ago, mm-hmm. um, I think it's well the idea that we've got uh, that AI progress has been so slow that we're looking at a hundred times as much more work. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems pretty odd. I mean, and, and, and especially, I mean, I hate to say Moore's Law, because by and large I feel it's a question of software rather than hardware. Yes, and we also um, know that Moore's Law is not a law at all. In some respects, it's already stopped, and others it will stop very soon. Moore's empirical regularity. Yes. And it's not even your friend, because Moore's Law of mad science, every 18 months the minimum IQ necessary to destroy the world drops by one point, you know, making it easier to build AI. Um, so that you can be stupider and still build one is not necessarily a good thing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when I hear a time estimate of 5,000 years, um, where, where has Moore's Law ground to a halt? Like, are people, do people have moon-sized computers or moon-sized superconducting, low-temperature, reversible quantum computers, and are they still unable to get human-level intelligence out of that thing? Uh. I, I see that as a as a as a plausible possibility because uh, uh, I mean I mean I, I don't think that you would want to build a moon-sized computer probably you would probably uh, be building things you know you I mean you would probably putting be putting your effort into miniaturizing the components but but anyway uh, you know I see it as plausible that we could have quantum computers for example long before we had human level AI. Well, I agree, but that's because quantum computers ha- offer a type of computing powers where it doesn't quite translate into doing whatever you want a human mm-hmm. imagines it doing the right. way that modern computers do, right. which is, of course, a topic that you are very familiar with. <laughs> um, so if there's, any, if there's any way to use the power of a quantum computer for the kind of artificial intelligence I'm interested in, uh, I don't know what it is. Right, no, and, which, I, and, and, and I don't either. I mean, you could get some speed-ups for some of the basic tasks of AI, like search or like, uh, uh, you know, game tree evaluation, uh, things like that. But these are not exponential improvements, or they're, they're not believed to be. Right, a uh, square root of the exponent? So, yeah, things like that, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and, what, so, and what that means, I think, is something along the lines of, well, we've got Deep Blue, and it's uh, searching a billion... Uh, moves per second, so it would be able to search twice as far into the search tree. Yeah, if right, so if Moore's Law were actually a law, then it's having the amount of time that you need. Uh. Well, well, Moore's, if Moore's, well, if you're just sort of throwing brute force at the problem, then Moore's Law actually speeds you up much more slowly than quantum computing. Uh, quantum computing, like just if we had the same computers but they were quantum, then Deep Blue would be searching twice as far, whereas just throwing raw Moore's Law at the problem without software improvements is just going to yield another ply or two of searching into the game. Right. Well, I mean, uh, going, switching to quantum computing is like a one-time thing, right? You do it, and then you're on a different Moore's Law trajectory, which is a little bit faster than the other one. Right, but what it actually works out to, I think, is, is would be a nine-month doubling time rather than an 18-month doubling time if you right. had exactly the same progress, but it was yes. all quantum. Yes. And, and I think that neither of us believes that Moore's Law is going to continue 5,000 years into the future on the no. same trajectory. That's correct. Um, but suppose I were to put it to you that when you say 5,000 years, what that actually is is sort of an expression of an emotional reaction that implementing intelligence feels really really hard to you and when you and when you when you elicit an amount when i elicit from you an amount of time you choose a time that sounds equally impressive and that comes out as 5000 years so it's not a a time estimate more of a um, making emotional 
change between two different currencies. I, I think that's that's basically correct. I mean, I was basically admitting as much when I, I said that uh, when I tried to uh, explain just just how much uncertainty there is uh, that it you know it depends on all sorts of other things about you know how does civilization uh, progress, uh, how much um, uh, uh, you know I mean I mean what sort of basic conceptual things have I not understood about this question? So you know, and and as I you know, I mean, I mean, this this gets into I guess another point of difference between us that sort of you know I'm not willing to uh, to sort of extrapolate uh, uh, Bayesianism you know into uh, uh, my uh, my sort of uh, rationalist theory of everything in the way that you are. You know, I'm willing to sort of be a Bayesian in limited domains where I feel like I understand you know what does it mean to have a have a prior what state space are we talking about and so forth. Um, but then, you know, I'm not uh, sort of willing to take that local Bayesianism and extend it into a, a global Bayesianism, you know. But uh, uh, still, you know, as a uh, sort of as a as as a game, you know, since uh, you know I do like to play games, you know, you ask me for uh, a uh, uh, for an amount of time until we de- you know develop uh, super intelligence, and uh, fine, I'll, I'll give you a number then. Tires, 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 tires. Before I close off the show with the discussion about transhumanism and the intelligence principle, I just want to share a, a quick uh, article that I found at Scientific American about the issue as to whether or not could could a, a human computer, sorry, could human and computer viruses merge, leaving both realms vulnerable. I first kind of had to, I laughed when I actually first saw this because it reminds me of an April Fool's prank I played many many years ago. This is about eight or nine years ago now. Uh, I used to do April Fool's pranks uh, every year in the form of a bogus article, whether it be for my blog or for Better Humans, which was a publication that uh, uh, we had back then. I've stopped doing this, by the way, only because uh, nobody will buy anything you say anymore on April Fool's. But back then, people were still a little bit naive, <laughs> and I could get away with some of this stuff. So I wrote an article that was exactly about this. It was a, like it was kind of like an onion type of headline where um, sensationalistic headline that a computer virus had infected a person. And I, this was really hilarious and uh, went into excruciating detail about how this could actually work. And I got into this discussion of RNA and uh, it it, uh, it actually got was pretty popular. And I was even listed, if I remember correctly, on some kind of a disinformation or um, misinformation uh, a website that alerted people to uh, this kind of bogus information going around. So I thought I was pretty proud of that to get that kind of notoriety. But here we have it now, let's say eight years later, I'm actually now reading one that's for real. Could human and computer viruses merge? And uh, there was a, uh, a conference recently in Europe. It was the uh, Black Hat Europe conference. And a couple of security experts were speaking there. There's Excel Aperville and Guillaume Lavette. And they are of the network security company Fortinet. And uh, they kind of, they kind of uh, have this scenario 
where uh, this individual had caught a bad bug. And though he was not in pain, he was keenly aware of the infection raging in his left hand, knowing that he could put others at risk by simply coming too close. Now, his virus wasn't a risk for humans. Gasson, a cybernetic scientist at the University of Reading, was walking around with an implanted microchip he had intentionally infected with a computer virus. If he got too close to a computer, he could, in principle, infect that machine. So, our uh, thinkers here, Aperville and Levitt, they say that both computer and biological viruses can be defined as information that codes for parasitic behavior. And in biology, a virus's code is written in DNA or RNA and is much smaller than the code making up a computer virus. The DNA of a flu virus, for example, could be described with about 23,000 bits, whereas the average computer virus would fall in a range about 10 to 100 times bigger. Now, the origins of each virus are strikingly different. You take a computer virus, for example, it's design, whereas a biological virus, that has evolved under pressure from natural selection. But now, what would happen if these origins were switched? Could hackers code for a super virus or a computer virus emerge out of the information wilderness and evolve over time? So Upperville and Levitt, they argue that both scenarios are possible, with a few caveats. Now, scientists have already synthesized viruses such as polio and SARS for research purposes, so it's conceivable that someone could synthesize viruses as bioweaponry. That said, Upperville and Levitt observe that viruses are notoriously difficult to control, and it's hard to imagine that anyone could use a viral weapon without it backfiring. As for computer viruses speciating and evolving, Aperville and Levitt believed that with enough data, the code for a single computer virus might form spontaneously. Chances are slimmer, however, that it would include the necessary details to adapt and evolve. So for this scenario, um, it's only occurred in viruses in which researchers have encoded genetic algorithms to mimic evolutionary processes. But there are more immediate possibilities for computer biology crossovers. Synthetic biology uses computers to store genetic information, and Aperville and Lovett explained that hackers could infect these devices or the software used for DNA sequencing, thereby modifying whatever biological product is being synthesized. So for now, that example of uh, an infected implant, that may spark the most concern, and it illustrates how cybernetic technologies leave humans vulnerable to unprecedented attacks. So just as a PC can download a virus after visiting a new website, cybernetic devices such as cochlear implants or pacemakers could be threatened when they connect to an external system. Once infected, the implant can then spread the virus to other systems. Inevitably, as we rely more on computers, the impact of viruses grow. After all, our favorite technologies are extensions of ourselves, storing memories, expanding our knowledge, and increasing our reach. As Gasson put it on, on his online Q&A about the study, even though the experiment has no effect on his health, it was still surprisingly personal because a part of me had been compromised. So fascinating area for sure. Going to close the episode now and talk about transhumanism and the intelligence principle. But I'm going to open it up with a quote from Stephen J. Dick, who really got me thinking about this idea. Quote, In sorting priorities, I adopt what I term the central principle of cultural evolution, which I refer to as the intelligence principle, which is as follows. The maintenance, improvement, and perpetuation of knowledge and intelligence is the central driving force of cultural evolution, and that, to the extent intelligence can be improved, it will be improved. End quote. Now, transhumanists are in the business of speculating about the degree to which we can have and will refine the human species. A central assumption among us is that there's a significant potential for the re-engineering of humanity. In modern practice, we've scarcely begun to scratch the surface, but our visions of what may be possible in terms of modification and enhancements is startlingly vast. Indeed, for most transhumanists, the notion that the human species is forever destined to remain a purely biological entity is both absurd and facile. Taking a step back, we can, can we seriously argue that the apex of intelligent life is the state at which it was last crafted by the processes of natural selection? Given the current deve developmental state of biotechnology, cybernetics, and information technology, combined with the potential for molecular nanotechnology, can we reasonably refrain from suggesting that humanity is poised to undergo a transformation that will be nothing short of radical and profound? And this isn't some airy-fairy, gee-whiz futurism talking either. Rather, it's a fair assessment of where we are at as self-modifying species that is yet to meaningfully integrate technology with biology. So let's take a step back and look at the big picture. 
for the dissenters and the skeptics, what often gets lost in the discussion is this 40-foot perspective. Discussions often regress to cultural, ethical, moral inhibition, yuck-factor ethics, and sheer incredulousness. It's hard for many of us to imagine anything other than our current state of being. But this isn't good enough. We need to start thinking more philosophically and broadly about the potential for intelligent life and the impacts that will come through steady technological progress. To assume, for example, that our current social, scientific, technological, and biological condition is at or near an end state is in its way a violation of the Copernican principle. It would be folly to assume that we observe ourselves at a particularly special point in history, especially when it appears that our rate of progress is accelerating. Instead, we should apply a developmental view to our situation and acknowledge the fact that we still have a huge space of possibilities to work within. So take this intelligence principle. A similar sentiment was articulated by the distinguished historian of science Stephen J. Dick in his 2003 paper, Cultural Evolution, the Post-Biological Universe, and SETI, where he argued that there is a disconnect between much of our current thinking and the prospects following exponential growth of technology as perceived in recent times. Dick's Dick's critique was primarily directed at SETI, but it's one that can be applied to those who are complacent about our current existential mode. In this paper, Dick makes the case that we may become or spawn a post-biological species, one that has evolved beyond flesh and blood intelligence to artificial intelligence, and is a product of cultural rather than biological evolution. He believes that this possibility hasn't been given the attention it's due, nor has it been carried to its logical conclusion. Consequently, Dick argues that we need to apply more long-term thinking when contemplating the problem of our future and that of intelligence in the universe. To that end, Dick suggests that we apply this intelligence principle to our long-term thinking about humanity's potential. Now, his central contention is that we should readjust our thinking and consider a post-biological universe, an argument powered by the likely age and lifetimes of technological civilizations and the overriding importance of cultural evolution as an element of cosmic evolution. And it's important to note that timelines don't matter. Well, they do matter, but let's set that aside for the moment. A significant number of people dismiss transhumanists on account of our overly optimistic timeframes. For the sake of argument, let's assume that technological progress continues to plod along at a linear rate. Well, that's still progress. Given enough time, incentive, and access to resources, there's no reason to believe that humanity cannot come to realize many of the futuristic visions espoused by the transhumanists. As long as something is scientifically viable, and there's a perceived need for it, it will be developed. To This is the crux of the intelligence principle. To the extent intelligence can be improved, it will be improved. And overcoming the limitations of human biology would certainly seem to be on the agenda. Among other things, the transhumanist, among other things on the transhumanist to-do list, it typically includes the eradication of infirmity, aging, and suffering. We don't imply that solving these problems is going to be easy, but we do suggest that these problems are not intractable. There is a will, and there will be a way. And on that note, I will conclude this week's episode of the Sentient Developments podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Please tune in next week as I have a, will have a lot to share uh, as I return from the Moral Enhancement Conference in New York City. I will in all likelihood devote the entire episode to that theme on how can we and should we improve the human sense of empathy and moral sense. Can we, should we, and how could we possibly do so? Until then, everybody have yourselves a wonderful week. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.